think we could tackle the subject of upbringing without mentioning Sigmund Freud, who was the founder of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, everything really up to this day has been uh, derived from his early theories about uh, childhood and how childhood influences our personality and how we become uh, adults. I think some of his theories about about this are a bit destructive because they seem to focus too much on sexual identity and, and, and less on the inherent goodness of man. I think I'm much more of a Jungian, but come on, hit mm. me up. Mm. Hit me with some Freud. Well, I'm going to do a potted version, and I should probably say potty version. Yes, probably potty. It's probably bang on. And yes, you're right. He did uh, refer to that stage or those stages as psychosexual. But actually, when you look at the translation, what he actually means is more to do with libido and our life force, our emotional charge, if you like. But the essence of Freud was that he he determined that all life direction was determined by the need to either procreate or to have sex of one form or another, as a, a, a either as a form of entertainment or just misdirection. Okay, well, I'm going to go further back to that. So he believed that there were five stages of uh, development for a child, and they were oral, anal, phallic, latency, and a genitalia. So let me just talk you through those, if, if, uh, if I could. Not to about 18 months is all about the, the mouth, uh, and it's a kind of erotic experience for a baby, where everything is centred uh, around the mouth, and that's where the, the libido is directed. That's because the only parts of the body that have enhanced nerve endings so that stage within the mouth. The baby uses the mouth as a way of exploring the outside world. So it's sucking, it's it's breastfeeding, it's chewing. If at that stage the mother or caregiver neglects the child, i.e. it doesn't get there quickly enough, um, the baby cries then gets angry, then that can affect the personality. So in in that case you'd have a child that's perhaps... Uh, learns that it has to be angry and get aggressive to get what it wants. Right. If it's overindulged at that point, then the child thinks, oh, I can get whatever I want when exactly, exactly yeah. when I ask for yes, it. Yes, quite. And then that child can, when it faces the frustrations of life, it actually struggles to deal with that frustration. So, so that can be the, that can be the emanation of its first lesson, which is scream loud, get what wants. Absolutely. And then, uh, so if you're an oral personality, an oral character, you can be quite needy, you can be a food obsessed. Those are the smokers, the nail biters, the finger chewers, and the stress, that's where they tend to. So you can get stuck at any of these stages, and that's called a fixation or arrested development. All right, so, okay? be- so beyond oral, what's next? We get to anal. Oh. So at this point, um, <laughs> without wanting to be too graphic, the child gets uh, its pleasure from defecating. And uh, you know, it's about tension and release. So at that point, finally, the child realises that it can't, it, it has to control. It has to control its pleasure. I have to say, when I started this podcast, I didn't think we'd be talking about bottoms quite so often. But carry on. <laughs> so yes, so at this point, this is all about potty training, Gareth. Lovely. Hmm. So if the parent is too harsh at this point, too strict, this is where we get his term, anal retention. And we use it a lot, don't we? We use really anal. And these are the personality that then... Doesn't want to let go. Doesn't want to let go. Very exactly. OCD, worried about tidiness, Mm. organisation. Can be emotionally repressed, if you like. And absolutely, the emotional state can be tied up to what the environment feels like. If it's cluttered, then high emotional state, high anxiety. If it's ordered and all the pencils and the laws of straightness being severely adhered to massively so and you know as we said you know we use that term quite a lot he's really anal if um it's not 
uh, well looked after. If that if that's too overindulged, then this can lead to actually quite generous personalities, but also a bit messy and disorganized. Right. So understood. that's that's the anal that's the anal bit. Right. Let's let's go on to the phallic, shall we? Oh yes. Yes. Now this is all unconscious. It should be said. So at this point. Um, the libido is directed towards the, the so genitals. Walking, we're not suggesting that, that babies are walking around with stiffies, are we? No, we are not. But however, having said that, they do have the, an attraction to the opposite sex parent. So the little girl can fall in love with the father and the little boy falls in love with the mother. And here we have the Oedipus complex. So again, this is all unconscious, but on an unconscious level, the boy is feeling jealous of the father who's getting all the mother's attention. Yeah. And he wants to kill him. But he knows that's not okay, so he has to sort of adapt and... Are you saying there's an actual urge to end the father? Unconsciously, the baby wants all the mother's attention, so right. you know, whatever it takes. I see. So it sees the father as getting in the way of getting that. Absolutely. And wow. the Electra is the opposite. So right, okay. So Oedipus comes from the king who... Well, it's actually, it was came from... The uh, little boy who was given away by the king because it was foretold that he would in fact kill the father king and marry the mother. Yes, yes, that's and right. then and that's the story of Hamlet, isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. If all is well, then the child, say the boy, learns to actually adopt some of the father's attributes traits. and traits, yes, and, and adopts the masculine role, and the little girl does the same. But if there's any, I don't, I just say abnormal is the wrong way, but if it's not well set up, then those unconscious repressed feelings about the, the attraction towards... If the, the plan is not strongly adhered to... Yes. Yeah. Then you yeah. have the difficulties. You have the difficulties. The sexuality. Why are we talking in this I stupid no idea. Sorry, carry on, carry on. <laughs> so, uh, and this is quite interesting. So, so this is where castration, this is where castration anxiety comes in. And I'm, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am crossing my legs at the he moment. And apparently, this is what stops us from doing a lot of bad things. Really? Is, is the castration anxiety for men. And actually, I think that he says for women. We'll run through the, the sequence of events that stops us from doing those bad things that, you, that he says. Go on. Yeah, so we have this conscious, this understanding. We're told, aren't we, that, that this, is, this is not okay to yes. be close to your mother or father in that way. But if things aren't going well, then these uh, sexual feelings get repressed. And in later life, it could be, say, that the man marries a, a, a woman replica of his mother. Yes, exactly. So that's where we get that, you know, that so he, coming in. This is the, I've just had this thought. It's like the ticker tape machine's gone. Gareth, put this thought in. This thought is like there are cultures around the world where being close to one's mother is considered absolutely essential, very close to one's mother. And other parts of the world where the mother shortly after giving birth is almost discarded from the equation. So is it not a lot to do with localised culture? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, he would say that our culture is very much part of uh, our personality. I think what that stage, it's about um, understanding that the child is not, it's its first feelings of a relationship with the opposite sex. Okay. And that is really then, he says that's the most powerful in, in terms of influencing the adult later on. So this so, is phallic stage. So what's the next stage. one past that? And next, I, I won't go into detail because it's not as important, but it's latency. And at that point, you it's called sublimation, where you put all your that libido into, you know, your homework, your hobbies, your friendship. So actually the child at that stage is not particularly... Uh, the, the libido is kind of latent, so it's called latency. So what sort of age group would you be when you're at the latent stage? 
Latent stage is about five to six, seven. Right. Yeah. And okay. then and then next is puberty, and then we have the genital stage. And so we were just talking about this before we got on air. So about five and six is the point of sentience, of, of the uh, the very appearance of self-belief, self-worth, and the id, really. So when yes. you start understanding that you are, exist as a being within the universe, mm. as opposed to just mm. being an, an addendum or an attachment to your mum and dad. And I think it, well, I think it's even earlier that the child realised that it's not, uh, you know, that's the narcissist stage. It's not the centre of the universe, and it has to. At that stage, it realised it is dependent. It's no longer in control. It's not able to control its world. So that's um, those are the uh, development stages. And as I said, ideally, you move smoothly through those. If not, if there's a fixation of some kind. Um, and Freud says it's like this army that moves forward, but some of the troops have to, uh, they get stuck behind to deal with the, the conflict at any of these stages. Some of the troops. Some of the troops. Yes. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a metaphor, Gareth. Okay, I can do and that. So our personality moves on, and yet part of us is stuck at these, you know, whatever stage it we, might be. We leave the rear guard behind. We we'll go back to bottoms again, aren't we? Now you just can't, you just can't resist. <laughs> I can't resist the bottom. Yeah, carry on. And then, so there's one other aspect that I think is quite important, and that is you mentioned it is Freud's belief that the personality was split into three different systems, if you like. Right. The id, the ego, and the superego. Absolutely. So, yeah, and they're all sort of in conflict. So the id. But it is, although they're in conflict it's a kind of balancing act between yes. the two yeah. and it's only where where the conflict rages harder in one section or another that the thing is put out of kilter it's very good i think it's been reached i'm doing some I, research I, I didn't i didn't do any research i'm making up as i go along <laughs> carry on yeah so the it is this childlike uh, primitive you know i want i want drugs i want food i, I want, want it now and i want it now yeah, yeah. and it's it's irrational it doesn't care about the consequences you know it's all about immediate pleasure immediate gratification okay and that's sort of sitting there. And then the ego is, I guess, the sort of what you talk about, the sentient, the conscience, the the, the one that's dealing with reality, that has communication. and The rationalist, the, the person, rationalist. The, the element within this whole consciousness that actually has to negotiate with reality. Yeah, absolutely. It's the mediator. So mm. it, mediate, it mediates between the two. And then you've got the super ego, the internal critic, the internal parent, that's not quite judgmental. Is that the same as the internal monologue? Well, well, should you really be doing this? Yes, That's exactly. Sort of it's like a Jiminy Cricket. I, think. I was actually saying, should you? Re- no, no, can't. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, and and it safeguards really uh, the id from going completely awol, and it safeguards society and culture. You know, in other words. It's saying, hang on a minute, do you really think that's okay? It's kind of a moral uh, aspect of ourselves. But the ego, healthy psyche, is basically the ego goes, you two, guys, everything has to come through me. Anything you want comes through me. So it's got a nice balance of like, you know, each of these have their turn. It's okay to sort of have pleasure sometimes, and but, you know, realise the consequences. Neurotic psyche, super ego is really, really strong, and, and you're really small, and you're whimpering, and the, the super, super ego is going, I'm in charge, and, I, you know, you're going to have double portion of guilt and a side order of shame, you know, and it, it's super strong. Especially so, people who went to Catholic nunneries, would that, would that be the one? I think it might be. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. So that's a sort of potty potted version of Freud. And, a potty you know, potted a, a version. Potty, you heard it here first. <laughs> and 
I think, the, you know, what comes from all of this is that Freud believed that through catharsis that we got a relief from all this repressed feelings. And that's what psychotherapy, psychoanalysis was all about, is, 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 is cathartic. Flipping the lid off the top of the soda bottle. Yes, because he, exactly. Because he believed that all of our emotional problem issues come from the past. Uh-huh. And so when we think about neurosis, psychosis, repression, anxiety, they are all really his terms Freudian slips you know he had a huge I'm wearing my Freudian slip underneath my Freudian skirt it's very good on you thank you so yeah I felt that we could sort of segue into your upbringing because I think in terms of what we've been talking about I'm surprised at how really grounded you are just before she says anything more just realize that she's actually talking in a rational manner uh, where her three (laughs) <laughs> the portions of her, her my consciousness. Ego, my ego is very strong. That's what I was going to well, say. Yeah. What she's trying to say is she's surprised I'm as well balanced as I am. Thank you. That's frankly. exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> so let's talk about your upbringing. What I, okay. what, what I know and would like to discuss sure. is it was very unusual. We've already talked about the fact that you were adopted. but It I, was a structured adoption and in a way different to many, but similar to others. And I'll make a reference to a film later on, which I think all listeners should take a gander at because it'll make them go, huh? Halfway through. And uh, the moment when I actually became entirely aware of my own derivation, I did much the same thing. But it was all about one fact. It was all about one ego. And that ego was my mother's. My mother and my father were the same age to within one month of each other. And then I'm not entirely sure if that bonded them together, but it did mean that they had all the same cultural references. They had a similar kind of cultural upbringing. They were both Jewish. They were from a middle-class Jewish background. They had the essence, the drive behind them. They both wanted to be leading academics. Uh, my mother uh, branched into the field of educational psychology, and my father was an electronic engineer. My father was very much what we would term these days a geek. He wanted to exist inside his little office tinkering with his electronics. And as long as he made a basic amount of money from that, he would be happy. He wasn't greatly driven to be successful. He wanted to be academically successful. In fact, after his death, I found, I think, 10 or 11 patents to his name, which he'd successfully pushed through and and got to completion. The irony, of course, was that because they were all based on mechanical objects which have since been superseded by computers they were effectively like the uh, the fireworks that fell into the toilet so tell me about what else you found when you were looking through your parents stuff well here's the interesting thing the moment i started looking through the filing cabinets owned by my father and mother which it should be noted had remained locked throughout the entirety of my uh, adolescence uh, and i'd never seen it before and here i am in my 50s was the first time I'd seen their content. It both rectified my knowledge, it kind of straightened it up, and also created some moments of pure light bulb and clarity. Things that had hitherto remained completely shrouded by mystery came to the fore. And I'll be revealing uh, a couple of those to you later on, so keep listening, guys. But the most important thing was this. My mother wanted a child. My father couldn't provide enough sperm, I don't think. I was never entirely sure why, but I think that was there was some mention of that at some point. Pure matter of fact. So my mother, because she knew enough people within the adoption service, and because she was very highly thought of, 
in the areas of educational psychology. She, I think manipulate might be too strong a word, but she certainly urged and nudged the system in such a way that at the age of, I think, early 40s, a time when it's very unlikely that even back then that a couple would be able to adopt. I was adopted at age just under one years old. I had spent that first year of my life at uh, I believe Earlsfield House Children's Home where my mother was resident educational psychologist and she spent the entirety of that year monitoring me and the concept behind her was this she wanted to identify a baby that was suitable that had the right early markings of intelligence that she could bring up it turned out later on that that wasn't enough for her she wanted a second baby which is fine of course but she wanted that second baby to be put through a parallel system as it were i was going to be put through the relatively privileged system i was going to be sent to public school i was going to be furnished with that kind of direction private tutoring and all the rest of it my sister was going to be put through the state school and she was not going to be furnished with that type of things. And she was going to pit one against the other. And that sounds fantastical. And it sounded fantastical to me. So um, is this what's called nature or nurture? Or am I completely... No, it's pretty much on the money. I thought this was rubbish. I thought I was in fact making it up. I supposed this from what little I'd gleaned. Remember, I'd never seen inside those filing cabinets. When my mother passed on, which was in uh, 2017, I was able to get access to the filing cabinets. My father was just beginning to lose his way, as it were. We moved in to look after him. And it was that point, of course, we had to declutter the house because my parents had both been what I refer to as middle-class hoarders. Yeah, and I think um, the hoarding point is also at the anal stage. So uh, uh, who knows Well, no, who knows I, what their upbringing was about? Absolutely. Well, I think they were Jews and they came from a Russian family and a Polish family, both of which had escaped persecution one way or the other. And so everything, you don't waste anything. No. Everything they might were have use. They were survivors. Yeah. I think what people don't realise is just how few Jews there are left in the UK. You have mentioned Yeah, that. it is. It, yeah. It's, it's but, something, it's a... a I think it's a tenth of one percent or something ridiculously low yeah but some of the things you named were quite out there um opened envelopes so tell me what some of the things that they were hoarding oh my goodness we've actually found an extra thing only in the last couple of days because there's still parts of the loft that haven't been explored yet and we have to get them cleared because at some point we're going to be moving on and we have to get the place cleared out but we found chest to a organization that were very responsible for zionism and zionist movement in israel and the settlement of some lands there now would not you think that's right or wrong to have this huge shared certificate for that, I don't think it's actually worth very much now because that company was disbanded and then absorbed into the Lumi Bank. But and that you could understand, but I seem to remember there being really things that most of us would throw away. They kept. Oh, oh my goodness! My father kept every piece of mechanical goods that went wrong. So there were there were old fridges, old microwaves, old printers. We're talking about ten or eleven of each, just stashed away inside rooms. They kept newspapers by the bucket load. They refused to throw out newspaper until both my mother and my father had signed each article to say they'd read them completely. Wow. So we are really talking in the in the kind of OCD anal state. Well, I mean, that's, that's... my mother obsessively collected books. And I don't mean she was looking for specific books. She would literally go to uh, a second-hand book sale or a bookshop that was closing and make them an offer for all of them indiscriminately. So we had up to 10, 15 paperback copies of really, really unknown works, some worth, 
something. Most of them worth very little. And when we came to work through them all, I think we had in, in, in excess of 11,000 books here. Um, the theory goes, in terms of psychoanalysis, is that that brings comfort. This, if these are people that are, on some level, deeply insecure. I think when you get to the top of your profession and people look up to you, and when you look up yourself and you don't perceive anyone above you, which is kind of where my mother saw herself, you start believing your own... Yes. It's narcissism. I think we both were brought up by narcissists. That's so my mother... For instance, at this time, this when I was young, so I was born in 1965, and I think it was in the 60s that the, the words autism, and then later on, I think in the 70s and 80s, Asperger's and so on, became, I wouldn't say banded, but certainly more popularly spoke about. My mother firmly believed that these did not exist, and when questioned, she would state they were a form of laziness. So I think there's a danger of us moving away from the topic which is this film you talked about and I remember when I watched it I thought from what Gareth's told me this is the same experiment so this is what I mentioned before guys I'm going to tell you the name of it now do check it out it it really will shake your world it's called Three Identical Strangers now the link with them is that it's about adoption it's about adoption of of Jewish adopted children and it's about nature or nurture I'm not going to give you any more details than that, but I would say watch it. And it will make some of what my mother was put us through a kind of amateurish version of what they were up to. Yeah, which was what? Well, it's ki- well, it's kind of, there's a word for this, isn't there? It's social engineering. She wanted to see how one child from a poor family, that was my sister. My sister was derived from a pair of drug addicts, one of which died in prison. The other one died from, uh, I don't think it was a drug overdose, I think it might have been a heart attack relatively recently, I mean a few years back but relatively recently and and my parents which was a sort of middle class Jew who had married a a Catholic wife and for one reason or another it it didn't suit them to have a baby and I remember you saying that that she recorded everything. Everything was written down. And phone calls you said? Yes, uh, uh, well not physically not recorded on tape but they would write copious notes for everything. In fact, when we were going through bits and pieces for my mother, we found that she'd actually been listening in on my sister's conversations to boyfriends uh, and so on, had been taking notes mm-hmm. of everything. And she'd listened in to all my conversations with my girlfriends and my wife-to-be, my first wife, and so on. And just to be clear, so, well, firstly, what did it feel when you read all these records? You said you had a light bulb moment. Well, the light bulb moment was, first of all, I hadn't been imagining it. Second of all, if anybody ever comes to this house, you'll notice that on pretty much the living room door and on the kitchen doors, there are locks right up high. Only an adult can put those locks in. My mother would bolt me in to the room with her inside it until I'd completed tests. And she would test me every week, come rain or come shine. They were all IQ tests or similar. So this was beyond what you were having to do at school in your homework? Oh my goodness, yes. It was a behavioural analysis test, IQ tests and so on. And initially it's quite interesting because when we discovered it, because I told my wife about this and I don't think she ever disbelieved me, but it all sounded like I'd fantasised some of it. But when we were both pulling these huge five-layer filing cabinets open and there they were, hundreds upon she had an affectation for writing on pink almost transparent paper that she attached to each test and there they were all the tests 
with all the pink papers and her notes on each one. I mean, so stuffed full that it was actually quite difficult getting the drawers out. And we were going through them. And you, they were in chronological order, starting from the earliest one, which was, I think, in what, five, six, going up to 13 or 14. The scores started diminishing. Now, when they started, all my scores were pretty high. They were consistent, that's the word I'm looking for. And then I remember, clearly, it occurred to me that I didn't want to do this. And I remember concocting a plan in my head. How could I get her to stop me, forcing me to do this thing? Because I started feeling like a caged animal. Mm. And up till then, obviously, this was a very meticulous, conscientious, determined woman. Who, that must have spent, must have spent hours doing those recordings. Yes, but it wasn't malicious, you see. Doesn't sound like it. No, no. and it wasn't evil. What, in her mind, she was doing something for the greater good. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not in any way thanking her or thinking she'd done a good thing overall, but I trying to get into her head and trying to see what was the direction she was pushing in and why. And the reason I think it was, she felt if she did this in this kind of cold, mechanical, consistent way, provide best evidence. And she was trying to provide evidence for nature or nurture. Yeah, I mean, that was a massive challenge and, and very timely, I imagine. You know, she might have been one of the sort of pioneers in that world to some extent. So, of course, what we're all going to be asking, and I, what you're saying is that you were a winning participant and then after a while you kind of cottoned on a little bit and then you just became less... Engaged. You could tell from the scores. Yeah. So all the scores in the early days were high 150s 160s 170s right and then you could see the moment i started trying to find a way out my scores scores start dropping and then eventually they're hitting the 60 and the 50 at which point she stopped doing it i think she must have realized that i wasn't going to play ball anymore and it didn't matter however long she locked me in the room it was going to make my stores come up and it wasn't going to help her derive anything from it so it stopped yeah so it's a shame because i think we'd all like to know whether she came to some conclusion in terms of your sister and yourself and whether there was something to publish about this. Well, the interesting thing was the only phrase I remember from this time was that she said to me that she spent a lot of time and effort on me and I turned out to be a real disappointment. That sounds like an absolute echo of my own mother. And my father was really not the power. He was the power behind the throne in a way. She would say, I, I want to do a thing. She'd never get her hands dirty. So my father used to beat me regularly in the early days. If I can picture, my father was about four foot six. Even while he was beating me, I, I think I, the smallest I, I had ever been when I was in my early teens was what five foot six, five foot seven. So I was always towering over him. And here he was beating me and me <laughs> carrying away. And it occurred to me one day, I don't have to stand for this anymore. So I grabbed his hands when he was about to hit me. Mm. And he grabbed his other hand. And from that point on, he never hit me again. But up till then, they were a sort of double act. Yes. My mother would say he needs to be punished. The A story that my wife will tell you, um, interestingly, there are parts of my upbringing that I don't know whether I've purposely done it or whatever, but they're just blank from my memory. I just do not remember them. But I used to run away from my mother because she was, although she was small and wiry, she was scary as hell. And yeah, there was something about her eyes that just very scary. So I used to run away. And I used to run away to my best friend's house, which is the end of the road, uh, the Dawns. And Mr. and Mrs. Dawn would take me in and hide me under the dining room table. And my mother would come to the door. Have you seen Gareth? And they would say, no, no. No, he's, maybe maybe he ran the other way. And she'd go running off and to try and find me. And this was because I was late, because usually when she was trying to test me, and I just didn't want to ha have any part of it. So you, they, were your, they were your refuge? Well, I used to hide there. We'd play uh, games, card games, whatever. And then I would 
go out through the back of their garden, climb over the wall, and then w- run around the block until I too hungry and I, I came back home again. Mm. We were very resourceful as children, weren't we? I w- we, we were talking, yeah. We were talking before about our commonality and being the parents of academics, and I uh, was saying to Gareth that all my friends at school, my best friends, were the children of academics. It was something that brought us together, um, and for me. I always remember thinking that I was in the way, I wasn't, they didn't really actually want me, that I remember them coming back from, they were at the same university in the same uh, department and they'd come back and they'd have both typewriters going at the same time, doing their marking or preparing lessons for the next day. And I just felt in the way or you well, know, I was, getting under their feet. I was mostly brought up by au pairs. Although I'd either fell in love with or, or idolised mm. or, or obsessed over. And mine spanked me. Mine uh, locked me in the bathroom, I remember, being locked in the bathroom. Your au pair? No, my, my au pairs... Obviously, we can't remember what happened between 0 to 5, but I know that my mother didn't breastfeed me. My au pairs were like 16, so what did they really know about bringing up children? No, my au pairs were quite old. But the earliest au pair we had was a very old lady who demanded that I got given lots of fresh air and she would take me out for lots of walks, uh, which I actually quite enjoyed because it was just getting away from the house. That's quite an old-fashioned idea, isn't it? Well, yes, lots of fresh air and walks, and I always had to wear my cap, no matter what was going on. I had to wear my cap, my school cap. God, yours sound a lot better than mine. Oh, yes, so we're lovely. After that, um, when the au pairs all went back to their different countries, I was taken to school by a whole variety of embarrassing people. So it was oh, a, there was the guy who well, tell me about them. There was a guy who did all the driving for the care home next door, and he had this battered old Dormerville, and he was called Frank. I remember he was called Frank, and he, he sort of we always be late because he'd be late. I remember kids going, "Where's your mummy and where's your daddy?" And they never. I almost that was my greatest wish was just to be picked up. Or, so you were always late because of that. Because of Frank, I was I was late at school. In fact, my nickname at school was Late One. Really? Because yeah. my father was supposed to be delivering me, and somehow he, he lost track of time and delivered me there about ten minutes late. I wouldn't have minded if it was my mum that that dropped me off late, and then I was picked up often by this woman who I think you know cared for about fifty children, and she picked me up with her motorbike, and me and my brother were getting the sidecar, and just I think there was this thing about poverty for me that I never was you know rich as the other girls in my school. So I remember that being. A huge, you know, this feeling Why were you, of shame. What do you mean you weren't as rich? So, well, you didn't co- have the latest stuff. Didn't have the latest stuff, but didn't, you know, the, 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 the later, then I went to a, uh, I left the convent and went to a secondary school, which right. was all girls' private school. Right. And my parents only just scraped enough money to get us through, so we didn't go on the skiing holidays. Or we- I had a similar experience, but for an entirely different reason. My parents could have afforded all of that, absolutely, but a. They dressed us in uh, second-hand clothes. Do you know what? To this day, I love second-hand clothes. You do? Absolutely. But the thing is, when you go to a private school where most people, they come brought in, in a Jag or in a Rolls-Royce with a, a chauffeur and so on, which most of them were, if you turn up with your cardboard briefcase, which I had, everybody else had a leather one, first world problems. But at the time, I didn't perceive it as an issue until later on I got teased I about it. I think maybe it's women, my girls are more sensitive, but I remember never wanting my friends to come round to my house. I was so embarrassed at how run down uh, it was. Same. Uh, I never wanted to come round to my house. Cause so they had these amazing But you know the reason why? It was because my parents, even back then, remember my parents were about 10 years older than everybody else's parents. Same as me. And... Yeah. 
they had piles of newspapers yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine had, you know, the the staircase was all lined with with newspapers, and it was this mildew and damp. And they would have these amazing parties, and their dads would always do stuff, and the mums would cook all this lovely food. And I remember feeling so ashamed and embarrassed. And I think that stayed with me for quite a long time. My mother would uh, attack anybody that I brought over, and I think I only twice tried to bring anybody over, and she throw their arms around them and be so over the top and so fake that my friends, well, ceased to be my friends rapidly after that. And I stopped even attempting to bring anybody yeah, around. Yeah, and the few that I did are still friends with me now. And I think oh, that good says Lord. a lot. Yeah. During all of that, and before I went to senior school, I when trying to, I think it was my early teens, so 12, 13, I was running away and pretending I was much older than I was, barely getting away with it. I do remember not wanting to go home, the dread of what I was going to face. Uh And it started when I had this little key around my neck with a pink ribbon. Ah, latchkey key. The latchkey key. Uh, And I would go back there and it'd be pitch dark. And I remember me and my brother on our own listening to all the children's programmes. And when Rhubarb and Custard came on, which is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, this feeling of sickness and dread because they hadn't come back yet. And normally they'll be back by that time. And this sort of... I just remember the sort of dusk and then this pitch darkness and me and my brother switching on all the lights in the house because we thought there were ghosts in there and not looking in the room just turning the lights on and what time of day would that be six yeah so they were still at university they were still at the college my mother would be so my father had to rely on my mother to drive him home he couldn't Uh drive my Uh mother would do everything she could to stay at the college interestingly so she had she ran the film society she ran the french society she did after school tutoring did you ever find out what the driver was was it she wanted she just didn't want to be part of her own life she wanted an audience I think that's what narcissists ah. want. They want she wanted an audience, and her students provide her, as the church did later on. This amazing. They wanted she wanted people to hang on her every word. Yes, and they you know, she did. She had a real fan club of students. We're sort of coming to the end of uh, our discussion about upbringing. So, if you could take anything from it, if you were going to look back at it and say, the thing that's made you Michelle Frost, the thing that's driven you now, what would you say it was? From your upbringing, can I you? I think I said it, it as well for narcissism. It was my friends, and it was my friends' families. I was they adop- saved you. I was almost adopted by one family, the Poznanskis, and I. We'll talk about this another time. But I told you that I then later found out that I was from Poznan. I wasn't a, a Catholic at all. I was born as a Polish Jew. I mean, not born as a Polish Jew. That's my ancestors. My ancestors. So uh, that was my my affinity. A bit like your. Do you, do you think that's the affinity between you and me? Probably, probably. And when you talk about that couple that used to hide you under the table. Absolutely, the dawns. I had families like that that would, that would they knew got, what was I, going I cannot on. tell you how scared I was. I'd be shaking like a leaf under the table and my mother would be talking at the door, just the other side of it. And I could hear them lying through their teeth. Mm-hmm. No, no, mm-hmm. we haven't seen Gary. That's, that was what I still value today. And as I said, they are still friends now. My gratitude. And then, of course... I do, like you said, I forgive my parents. I don't think they were evil. I think their intentions were right. And I think the fact that, some say you choose your parents, but the fact that I had to be a survivor and, you know, I I used to escape into books. So I say even now. Me too. I used to hide inside books. Books and music uh, were my my ways of survival. But for me, the one thing, it was the point when I realised, what, six or seven years ago, that the reason why I felt different from everyone else is that I'm on the autistic spectrum and that I don't perceive the world the same way as perhaps a lot of other people do. It suddenly clicked in place. So I would say 
in response to the same question, the one thing that helped me get through was people that would see me as who I am without judgment. And I found a few of them as I was being brought up. Phil, my friend from Maccabi, who has been my friend for 40 odd years, that I met at that time. It was people like him who were my anchors because yeah. I knew that they saw me for me. We needed allies, didn't we? And, allies. And, you know, it was That's like, the word. It was a war zone at home, so we needed allies. So I'm going to end with a poem which is by Philip Larkin. I did um, say before, we are highbrow here. For those listeners who are a little sensitive when it comes to uh, swear words, there are a couple, but you'll see why. Just hold yourself together. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the thoughts they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. This has been The Essential Guide to Surviving Humanity with Michelle Frost and Gareth Wax. 